Dead men tell no tales. Fifty men loaded in man's chest. Yo ho ho and a bottle of rum. Drink and the devil had done for the rest. Yo ho ho and a bottle of rum. What will we do with the drunken sailor? What will we do with the drunken sailor? What will we do with the drunken sailor? The ship with black sails that's crewed by the damned. Welcome aboard the Black Pearl. Welcome to the Black Pearl Show, a Pirates of the Caribbean Minute podcast where we analyze, scrutinize, and plunder the Pirates of the Caribbean films one blimey minute at a time. I'm Scott Artis from ScottArtis.com. And I'm Heather Artis from BlackPearlMinute.com. So you don't want to say any banter or have any of these little conversations in the beginning, just want to jump right to it, yet you're going to plunder my intro. Yeah, because it kind of throws you off. I like It does do throw me off, because then I was like, what comes after that? <laughs> it's all memorized as one introduction, and then when you do that, I have it's to like then go through it in my mind to come up with the next one. It's like a poem. It's like kids... And their ABCs and their alphabet. You just say, throw one out in the middle and then say where to go. Then it's like you can see them stall because they're doing the whole alphabet before they get there. That's like this. You didn't like my poem reference? No, I didn't like your poem reference. It's just rude. Thanks for joining us for Minute 35 of Dead Man's Chest. Happy Friday, by the way. Oh, happy Friday. In the previous minute, Captain Jack Sparrow gets his big break. I can sense he's going to be a star. Nothing says a big star like landing his first television commercial for pharmaceutical giant Pfizer where he's standing up against erectile dysfunction. That's right. Captain Jack Sparrow in his first Viagra ad. Picture this. Jack mingling with some Caribbean cannibals, a large headdress, standing up and approaching the tribe. I want big fire, big fire, maboogie snickle snickle, which translated means want more wood. Meanwhile, Cotton takes a bite out of Gibbs and the remaining Black Pearl crew dangle in a couple of bone balls. It's a hell of a Viagra ad. You wouldn't forget that if you saw that. No, you would not. In fact, I need to go out and get some right now just from listening to my own ad. Maybe they'll hire me as their marketing genius. Minute 35 begins with Jack telling the guarding tribesmen to get more wood for their fire. As the Pelagosos scramble to prepare a roaring bonfire and satisfy their chief and God's request, Jack smirks. The Pelagosos look up to see Jack has disappeared. The minute ends with Jack rummaging through a Pelagosos hut, anything that can aid in his escape. He grabs some rope and as he is heading out, looks back as something has caught his attention. This That's- isn't just any hut. This is the torture hut. It is a torture hut. And you know what's funny? I actually had something prepared that was going to, not sure where you want to start, because you usually don't have anywhere to start. And it was just a little introduction and guess what? You gave it the big old thumb. You ass-cracked my intro <laughs> to the actual show and my transition information. All because one time out of a hundred, you finally have something to say right in the beginning. How dare you? I mean, seriously. Think about what you've just done. Really? Yeah. It's ridiculous. Jeez. Anyways. Yeah, it is the hut of horrors. Right? Oh, it's crazy. There's this, I don't know what it is, front and center, you see this. Knife thing of some sort, hatchet. I don't know. The first thing that caught my mind, your mind, because I or have your eye? a problem with idioms and <laughs> phrases these days. 
God, your mind's eye. It's really gone bad. <laughs> it is. <laughs> I have no idea what's going on. I just got to kick back and, and hang out and hopefully it comes back to me. But the scene in Twister when they're running and trying to get away from the tornado and then they run into the barn and then they look around and it's filled with all these sharp yeah. farm tools and instruments. And they're like, oh my God, this is not where we want to be. Yeah. Jack goes into a hut. A cannibal hut and sees a lot of sharp objects. Yeah. You don't hang out there. The one that's front and center, I don't know what it is, like I said. You can see on the blade, there's actually hairs. Yeah, it was disgusting. And like, it's got to be blood or skin, I don't know, on the blade. But there's like, you could totally see the hairs. It's it's just gross. And there's another one that you can also see hairs. There's the light, you can't see it at that particular shot, but a different one when the light is coming and in from the like the window, yeah, you can see the fine hairs glistening off of one and shining there. That's yeah, nice. it's quite the touch they did. Yes, they made them used, not just yeah. nice dangling. <laughs> they, they, the Pelagostos obviously do not clean their weapons after they're done. Hell no! Why would they? Although I would expect them to lick them clean. So actually. they don't rust. Hello. That's true, man. This is an interesting hut that he's in, though. That it is. Since we're also rummaging about the hut of horrors here. Not sure if you noticed, but while Jack is looking through the Pelagostos things here. Yeah. We get a semi-obstructed look at some of the fine china in a crate. Did you see any of the china there? Yeah, it was a little teacup and... Well, there was a teacup. There was some silver serving teapots and stuff. And then there was also some fine chinaware that was in a crate there. It's the ever-popular blue and white china with a pattern that is... Pretty hard to discern from the details. Yeah. Or from the angle we're at to see those really fine details. But yeah, blue and white. It's uh, pretty popular. And I must say, I was able to make a general identification of the China. Yeah. At least regarding the genre of China. Not specifically that pattern, but the genre of what this is, if we want to call it that. It's called Blue Willow China. And I figured nothing says good radio than the exciting topic of 18th century China. And teapots. It's exhilarating. Everybody, settle back. We're going China style here. According to the National Park Service, the blue willow pattern was introduced in England by the Spode factory in the late 1790s. Did you say National Park Service? Yeah. During the 18th century, yeah, they uh, know all kinds of things. Okay. Plus, perhaps you recall, English came over to this land and hence America was born. Colonist, yeah. Americans weren't said, always here, except for Native you Americans. Said park Service, though. yeah, the National Park Service. Okay, they dabble in history, history of the nation, artifacts, those kinds of things, places, historical sites. It all hasn't been apple pie. There's been some British Isn't running that around here. More of a museum and historians than a park service. Don't park services just take uh, no. care of the You parks? obviously have no clue about the National Park Service. I do not then. That's right, you don't. The Department of Interior also does a lot of, not just exterior as opposed in opposition to the name, but they do a lot of interior stuff and take care of a lot of artifacts, kind of like with, say, the Smithsonian would do or the National Archives. They also house stuff like this. The National Park Service has historical monuments and places all over the country. I was a board member on the John Muir Association, remember? And that was also part of the John Muir Historical Site, which is run by... The National Park has his house, has all of his artifacts in there. There you go. Oh, my God. 
During the 18th century, Europe was fascinated by all things Chinese and especially their beautifully hand-painted China with scenes of Chinese landscapes. The blue willow pattern is not necessarily an exact copy of Chinese pattern, but it's rather based on several traditional Chinese designs is what they say. Here's where we get a bit of the lovey-dovey stuff, though. The romanticism of pirates. Okay, no, willow wear. Willow plates. Willow china. Blue and white china became really this hugely popular china wear, dinner wear, whatever you want to call it, in the 18th century, and along with other patterns, too. So it wasn't just this one, but other stuff. Starting in the 17th century, specific blue and white patterns started to be made in China as an export for the European market. They're like, these guys are gobbling it up. Let's start making more of it. And Staffordshire in England is also known for their blue and white porcelain. The style was popular well into the 19th century and is still widely reproduced today. Willowware is said to tell a love story through its images on the plates. Oh, really? Exactly. Like I said, lovey-dovey. And then you get the moneymakers who go, wow, people are really fascinated by this and the love stories that these plates supposedly have. How can we increase our sales like that? Well, in order to promote that sale of their plates, China, I shouldn't just call them plates. They're fine China. Minton's willow pattern decided in order to promote this that they would come up with some romantic stories and fables that were based on the elements of the design, although they had no actual link to the China, huh. which is what the stories were describing. So they had all these kind of Asian Chinese stories and fables, but it didn't really have a link to China. And people were getting like, oh, my God, this is like old school Chinese fables and stories. And then they're just snickering in the corner saying, no, we just made that up. <laughs> And the story of the willow pattern was turned into a comic opera in 1901 called The Willow Pattern, oddly enough. It was also told in a 1914 silent film called Story of the Willow Pattern. Robert Van Golick also used some of the idea in his Chinese detective novel, The Willow Pattern. A lot of willow pattern action yeah. going on here. You and search willow pattern and you come up with all these different things. Hey, trust me. Things. Oh, yeah. In 1992, Barry Purves, or Purvis, maybe Purvis, made a Purves. Now, come on. <laughs> Really? I hope it's not pervs. But if it is, my apologies to you, sir. <laughs> Made a short animated film relating the story transplanted to Japan and entitled Screenplay. There you go. It's entitled Screenplay. Not no. Willow Pattern? No. But in the early 1900s, there must have been a desert of new ideas because they're like, oh, hell, we might as well use plates as inspiration and start making our stories and operas and things off that it's a little weird they could have yeah sat down and had some good inspiration but they must have all just been at the table trying to patterns yeah what what kind of inspiration is that and i didn't even mention that poems were written about the blue willow pattern or the appearance in novels and tv shows like the munsters andy griffith really yeah heather's favorite murder she wrote or in another <laughs> depth movie sleepy hollow all featured willow pattern china in them huh interesting very popular, I said. When I was growing up, mom and dad had a blue and white pattern. That's willow pattern. On there. It's not China, though. Well, those are paper plates. Ah! <laughs> no. <laughs> they were, uh, what's the ones that are not supposed to break? Your parents were in the, no, the, the plates in that... their room, drawn with a blue <laughs> big pin on there. God, I hope they yeah. think that this is China. They go, look at this, blue and white paper plates. No, oh, it was didn't. an everyday wear. Well, these, this it's China just, sure does not hold up it, in the dishwasher. It's the, it's the dishes that aren't supposed to break. Can't think of their name right now. 
Plastic? Chinette? No, that's a... Chinette? Now we get the full picture. Not Chinette. Chinette it is. No, it isn't. Chinette it is. You don't know. Never mind. I don't know. I may appear to be a porcelain (laughs) fine china expert. It's not fine china. It's just Apparently not. You called it Chinette. It's everyday wear. We found out it was paper plates. Plastic wear. It's not plastic wear. But why in the fun with willow wear when we can also talk about silver tea sets? I think we're nailing our target audience. You Those know, 75 years and older? What? I found it interesting that you have all these weapons. What are you doing? I, I'm asking, I'm telling you something. You have all these weapons in this hut, and then you have China and a tea set. Yeah, obviously what there's they a reason for this. Eating their tea or drinking their tea and having their tea while chopping people up? That's so weird that you just jumped in when I was going somewhere with this. And it wasn't anywhere where you were going with. I was trying to do my transition. And you just jump right in during the middle of it. Plus, I had a nice little joke there. And you destroyed it. So I hope you're satisfied with yourself. Maybe I am. Yeah. And I might come back to it. I might not. You might just have lost out. No, because I was asking a question. Because inside this hut is not just their carving weapons, if you will. Yeah. But there's all kinds of stuff there that they've either gotten from trade ships, which we're going to see because you can see in the background, although we don't focus on it like we do in the next minute. You can see on the chest that there's an East India Trading Company or East India Company logo on one of the chests there. Additionally, they're eating people. So people that are coming to shore with items, this is like the hut where they put stuff that maybe they'd like to keep or have traded with or have interacted with other people like our friend Shrimper. Trading for delicious long pork and spices and things like that. Okay. Just from the people or traded. But you would see some bones sitting in the teacup and in the teapot and stuff like that. You do see some bone fingers and things in there. That's kind of gross, but okay. They're just storing them there. I don't think these are (laughs) fine dining people. I don't think they put their long pork on plates if you get my drift here. No. And I don't think that they're necessarily mashing up bones for bread or whatever that saying is. But they are storing finger bones. Maybe they use the finger bones as a stirring rod when they're drinking their tea at the time. Wasn't that on a show? I have no idea. All I know is that you ruined my joke, my target audience joke, that we are hitting that 75 years and older crowd. It's a rarely sought after demographic when we're talking about teapots and fine china. But you destroyed it because you had to jump in like a butterfly effect. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Now all I have to say is this episode brought to you by AARP. Life alert. Help, I've fallen for this podcast and I can't get away. And the clapper. Clap on, clap off. The clapper. There. (laughs) Thanks for that. Toiled and troubled all day for that. And you come and destroy it in the blink of an eye. Hope you're happy with yourself. Sorry. I really don't have much to say about the silver serving set, actually. So thank God. I'm sure the younger audience is saying that while the older audience is going, oh, I really wanted to hear about his teapot expertise. But I did notice that the larger pot has a wooden handle. The silver teapot. Yeah. Or maybe coffee pot. Silver teapot. Teapot probably. Had this nice kind of dark wood, maybe mahogany, blackened kind of wooden handle. Classic look that actually fits the time period. Oh, okay. During the 17th century, tea imported from East Asia changed the drinking habits of Europe and, before long, the American colonies. As a reminder to Heather, the American and the European, specifically Great Britain, the UK, were kind of linked in a certain way. You might want to revisit the earlier part of this episode. You know what? The caffeine it contained was stimulating, but without the negative effects of the beer or ale Europeans and the colonists normally drink, even for breakfast. Arr, grog. And 
because it was made with purified water by boiling it, it was healthier than the plain water. So there you go, morning beer drinkers. You're just paying homage to our forefathers. Keep up the good work. Have a beer in the morning. For European and colonists alike, tea was expensive. Tea party, anyone? Oh, uh, uh-huh. Yeah, kind of taxes, but we'll just say tea party for the joke. A lame joke. Subtle joke. And drinking it was really often more of a social event. And this, like, distinct etiquette developed around its consumption. And special utensils were designed for preparing and serving tea. Teapots made of silver were the choice of the well-to-do. The metal retained heat and could be fashioned to make vessels of subtle sophistication and beauty. Its smooth surface was ideal for etching designs indicating ownership of commemorative events. So instead of a picture, yeah, they'd have it engraved on a teapot because they didn't really have pictures. There's no phones back then to take pictures or cameras. The teapot. <laughs> Thanks spa- for informing us. Of yeah, that. and I got this bit of tidbit from the national park stuff. Teapots sparkled when moved and handled. We all know that, okay? Yeah. The silver ones, especially, is what we're talking about here. But when not in use, they were displayed, infusing light into dark corners of colonial interiors. Oh. They were not only a symbol of the owner's social standing and prosperity, but they would actually have some kind of functional light ability. Right. Getting some light into the house, the dark house. And you thought the National Park just swept the outdoors. How dare you? Never mind. Silver vessels also had monetary value, were a form of cash reserves that could be melted down and used as currency. So if you didn't want to, you know, banks and things like that, you didn't do that. Yeah. Instead of just having coins sitting around, you could actually get teapots and silver teapots and things like that. And so it would be a form of having your cash. It's like holding your cash and then you could liquidate it if necessary. Huh. Sorry, Grandma. Need to melt down your commemorative teapot just to buy some morning ale for the kids. (laughs) Kids are thirsty for some beer. We don't have any money, so we need to melt down your teapot. Oh, the memories are gone now because you had them all nice engraved. Talk about a show that not only dabbles in pirates, but high society as well. Governor Swan would be proud of us. Now let's talk about that other aristocratic topic. Skulls. It's appropriate for cannibals. We're still in the hut. There's a skull over the door in the Pelagostos hut where Jack is still looking through that we're in. Did you see that? Yes. Of course you didn't. I did. Not sure if it's a blatant skull and crossbones reference. Pirate Easter egg. It looked like a skull and crossbones. It had a it looked like it, but had a bone know. under it, parallel or horizontal with yeah. it. Yeah. But I didn't see actual crossbones. But it It's possible that that's what it was kind of meant to be, or if it was maybe more emblematic of simple cannibal living, or maybe something more symbolic of the occult or something else like that. Maybe it's denoting the spiritual and eternal nature of life and death. Maybe. It's my symbolism coming out. It might make sense for the tribe here, since they have this belief that their chief, a god in human form, is set free upon his death and being eaten. Possibly. So I did some checking, of course. (laughs) Printed ephemera in the 17th century. Now we're in the 1600s, though. Such as funeral invitations featured the skull and crossbones capped with a winged hourglass. The idea of spiritual internal nature was linked with life and death. Not the real happy invitation that you're getting to a funeral when it's skull and crossbone related. No. Yeah. There's even a Wizard of Oz reference with a skull over the doorway. Really? There's a shot of a scene from inside Professor Marvel's wagon. And remember, he's the wizard. We see a large skull centered over the doorway. The message, maybe if you're contemplating on the skull, it opens this doorway to higher wisdom. It's kind of the thought behind that. Setting their god free in human form is similar. It opens the door to retrieving his power because he doesn't necessarily have his power, his godly powers, Jack. Right. According to one source I have, it was common in antiquity, the skull and crossbones symbol, this is what we're talking about, 
the skull over the door and was conveyed by a lot of the people as well that by the middle ages intellectuals in europe were calling it memento mori which is latin for remember you are mortal or something like remember you must die hmm. so that's kind I, of we the, always want to remember that exactly that's why yeah. it's over the door every time you walk out it's like oh my god be careful you could die when you go out there they're probably taking the statistics that they have that most accidents happen like in the home or just within a few miles of the home isn't it like 10 I don't know what it is. Of course, you had to get technical. You couldn't leave it alone, could you? You had to throw a number in there. I could set a couple and you had to come in like, isn't it 10? Uh, 9.54 to be exact. But this is a reminder of the temporary nature of human life and the inevitability of death. Okay? And you want that over your doorway? Apparently they do. Huh. And I think for the Pelagosos, though, it's not necessarily that kind of symbol. It's more of a, I'm hungry. It's eating time. <laughs> <laughs> It's time we go snacking. And then they go out and then they get some uh, long pork. I know we don't want to go back to the jungle drums quote. Speaking of delicious long pork and natives are restless and getting hungry. The hungry jungle, as they called the uh -huh. trope. But I do have to bring it up here again because it's exactly hitting those beats to a T. The drums have like this buildup. The natives are getting restless and the problem or maybe this chase is going to happen when the drums stop. Jack disappearing has caused the drums to stop. When he takes off. Mm. Gibbs also mentions that Jack's life will end when the drum stops. Right. So I like the transition from the serious of the jungle drums, this ominous meeting that they carry, to the Zimmer score jumping in when Jack is seen running across the bridge. Is that It the takes one? like a whimsical turn. Right. Is that the same music they play when Jack's running in Curse of the Black Pearl. Uh, I'm trying to remember now. I'm trying to think if that is the same part or if it's a variation of it. Because I'm yeah. getting a little... I'm, I don't know now. Because now I'm only thinking about Dead Man's Chest. And I can't right. picture the music necessarily for that. I'll have to look it up. Or someone in the audience, I'm sure, will tell us. Sounds familiar, yes. Because yeah. we've heard it before. But I don't know where. But, I mean... What we're seeing here, I mean, it really has this like whimsical beat to it that's fitting of Jack. It's like a sprightly, flamboyant waltz. Yeah. And you know me, I'm always doing the waltz around the house. You are. I'm a cotillion aficionado. Yes. But I did do some checking up on this particular piece, which is actually, because I didn't mention it, it's called Jack's First Escape is the piece of this. So I think there's some variations that happen and maybe in Curse of the Black Pearl, and I'm not sure. Like I said, okay. I'll have to get back. But... This one, actually, Zimmer was more hands-on. Although, oh, okay. the first film, Klaus Bedelt, really had that, that title. But apparently, Hans Zimmer was actually involved with another film. And by contract, he couldn't have his hand in another picture because he was already working somewhere else. So, he kind of under the table did stuff, but he didn't take credit for it. He got like more of a music producer credit, not oh, actually okay. doing the, the, the legwork. Right. But according to FilmTracks.com, they say you'll notice that Dead Man's Chest has some significant differences in style and structure from The Curse of the Black Pearl. And Zimmer expands this orchestral palette a little further, uses a variety of new rhythmic tools, and seems to have a more intelligent grasp of the thematic integration. Did you get that? Yeah. In fact, he even manages to infuse a little more genuine spirit of character into the score. There, that's what I was really going go. for. A more genuine spirit of the character into the score and i think that's what we get here i mean i completely yeah. agree especially jack i mean that kind of sums it up when he starts running it brings back some of that comedy moment or more whimsical as i've already said a thousand times moment to his 
I'm escaping. I smirked. Now I'm running and I'm running away. I tricked them. The yeah. whole classic trickster element comes up. And I think that music really lends itself to him getting away. Especially because the jungle drums have this really ominous tone. Like, And I, I don't think it's just because Gibbs has said it or Pentel and Rigetti kind of alluded to it. You know, that there's drums. Oh, my God. Yeah. I think it's ingrained in people just by growing up and listening to music or more watching cartoons and watching old movies and things like that where you have drums from natives, it's always usually never a good thing. Right. And it just, I think that just causes you to to think of it as something that's not necessarily a good thing. You hear the drums in the jungle, you know, oh my God, this is maybe isn't good. There's yeah. natives around. It's like, Well, maybe I could be friendly to the natives. No, that's not your first thought is, oh, my God, these (laughs) are savages that are going to come to kill me. That's what you kind of think about that. That's your first thought. But then again, I mean, people with evolution, the ones that actually stayed to go, hey, I'm going to be friendly. Well, the ones that had that instinct not to run are not in the gene pool anymore or not as much. And so the ones that always ran away got to live another day. Something like that. Actually, that's like a Maverick quote, isn't it? He who runs away lives yeah, to do yeah, another yeah, day yeah, or whatever. Yeah, 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 Lives another day. Something like that. Yeah. And because they were calling him a coward. Yeah. So a weird Maverick tie-in. But actually what's interesting because the Russian who's there hires, I can't think of his name right now, Graham Green, the actor, but I can't think of the actual guy, the Indian he plays, the Native American. But he says that they've hired... He was paid to have the war drums being played all the time just so he could hear them in the background. So, okay, weird tangent. But anyways, I think that we're conditioned to think that those drums have a bad juju to them. Right. Just because it, cause they're not really, it's not like it's a scary sounding drum beat or anything no. like that. You just go, oh my God, there's natives out there. They're going to slaughter us. Just the same reaction that Pintel and Rigetti had. Yes. I mean, I, I wouldn't run today. It's not like I hear drums in the neighborhood or something. I'm like, get the hell out of here. There's natives in our neighborhood. <laughs> no, probably some kid just practicing at his drums. <laughs> so as I'm running out of our neighborhood, scared of all drums. I can't. That's why I don't go to concerts. I'm just deathly afraid of drums now. But I think it's time for our recurring bi-weekly segment where we highlight our favorite lines from the minutes covered in the last two weeks. It's really bad eggs. Heather, what might you have for us today? We got to take care of our immortal souls. Hmm, that's a good one. Yeah, I thought so. <laughs> this just goes back to what you were saying about Pintel and Rigetti becoming religious all of a sudden now that they're no longer immortal. Yeah, I like that because I think it really says a lot about their character. Before, it's like, hey, we're immortal. We can do whatever the hell we want. Yeah. Now that they're not, it's like, well, we better start thinking about what we're doing here. Yeah. I think that makes sense for them. I think so. Their and it also falls in line with what you were saying about the skull over the doorways. The nature of life and death. Yes. Mine comes from minute 30 and is from our dreams of conquering the world, Lord Cutler Beckett. Stodgy little guy. He tells Elizabeth, a marriage interrupted or a fate intervenes. Mm. This is such a powerful line for the plot of the movie that I couldn't stay away from it. Yeah. He's working an angle to get Elizabeth to doubt herself, to give the audience pause, maybe a misdirection that I think is going to be carried throughout the entire film. But he continues to play off Governor Swan's desires, too, for Elizabeth to drop Will. Get away. There's nothing left for you here. 
Is this a reprieve from a wedding she really didn't want? Or is this just a minor inconvenience? He's planting that bug in her mind. And also, Jack's confused. His compass is spinning without a heading. Will is off looking for Jack and the compass. Will he or can he ever return? Elizabeth has to flee Port Royal. Her dad hopes she's done with Will. And Will just might have some doubt about Elizabeth's feelings himself later on in the movie. What? It's a setup to keep the audience guessing and intrigued by the story here. That's why I chose it. I thought it was interesting. It is interesting. Because then you're sitting there going, what the hell is going on? Is she really listening to this? Is this really her feelings? And so that's why I took that line and thought it'd be a good summation of the plot of the movie. And what does properly mean? Yeah. Nobody could tell me either. I really? even posted it on our Facebook listeners crew and I didn't see any answers to that. Nothing, huh? No. So now we, we bow our heads in shame since we don't know. And we're going to wrap things up, I think, probably for Friday. Okay. Hey, everyone, though, I do want to say let us know how we're doing. Things you would like us to expand on or touch on, suggestions to make the show better, ideas to incorporate into the show or for bonus show topics. Is the new schedule even suiting you? I mean, whatever you got, just let us know. We're all ears and maybe some toes, too. (laughs) Attached to our bodies. Yeah, we're wearing toe necklaces, by the way. You can find all the links to contact us at the Black Pearl Show... Not the Black Pearl Show at blackpearlshow.com. Or you can call the Pirate Hotline, 8637 Pirate. Now pull out the grog and have a scurvy old grand weekend time. That's all I have to say. So Yo. we'll be back on Monday with minute 36 of Dead Man's Chest. Till then, Scallywag, think you know what to do? Let's keep the horn swoggling to a minimum. Yo ho, yo ho, pirate's life for me. Wow. People probably don't know, but you actually sang part of that song in the beginning of season one's <laughs> intro. That is you singing that. Yes. It's a little Easter egg. <laughs> little hidden secret. It's like our Disney Mickey head that's yes. hidden. It's our hidden Mickey head, but instead it's Heather singing hidden Yo-Ho, Heather. Yo-Ho, A Pirate's Life for Me. Okay, now get the hell out of here. You've been listening to The Black Pearl Show. And we appreciate it, scallywags. Heather, I know you're still on pirate time and kicking back with the booze, but you may have noticed... Actually, who am I kidding? The only thing you've noticed lately is the inside of the Faithful Bride Tavern. Anyways, our procrastination has paid off yet again and Season 2 is here and we are willfully unprepared. Maybe we can distract people with a Jack Sparrow wave of the hands and send people across that thing called the internet. Check us out on Facebook.com slash Pirates of the Caribbean Minute, Twitter.com slash Black Pearl Men, Instagram.com slash Black Pearl Show, SoundCloud.com slash Pirates of the Caribbean, that's for best of clips, and by all means give us a plug and review on iTunes. We'd appreciate it, mateys. Oh, and let's not forget the Facebook Cursed Crew listeners group for post-episode discussions. That's actually a lot to remember, especially if you're in a foggy haze like Heather. Just go to blackpearlshow.com and everything is there at the click of a button. Perhaps I should have just said that from the beginning. Yo ho ho and a bottle of rum. Yo! This is a Shoutreach Media Production. Pirates don't need no stinking disclaimers, but just for fun. I think all you dirty, filthy bilge rats know that Disney and Bruckheimer Films have no affiliation with us at all, and we have none with those blooming cockroaches. We talk about Pirates of the Caribbean, which is their property, and all that other fun stuff. 
but I think it's obvious what's ours and what's theirs. There's no need to blur the lines or stir up a bloody rum-filled sweat. As for the music, that's with permission or licensed under Creative Commons. So let's give a shout-out to Ross Bugden, Six Nail Coffin, and Tommy Wynn. The rest? Well, that's just me. Oh, and maybe Heather.